Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified on a Roman cross. Who crucified him? Sinful men crucified him, but never forget that he was delivered over to those men by his father. By his father. This is what it says in the book of Acts. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Even while Jesus fulfilled the plan of God and suffered on the cross, he spoke seven times. He said seven things while he was hanging from the tree. He came to the earth to die and also to preach. And there on the cross, he's doing both. So give your hearts and your minds over to meditating on these these very dense statements Jesus made on the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a sermon on the doctrine of the cross, said, The death of our Lord upon the cross is not something to be regretted. It is not something to be explained away. Nor is it something to be kept out of sight and hidden. God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the contemplation of Christ's work on the cross is necessary it's, it's necessary for understanding the Christian faith. Christianity makes no sense without the cross. Our terrible sinfulness and God's amazing graciousness come into focus there. A Christianity without the cross crumbles to the ground. Take away the cross and you're left with nothing better than any other man-centered religion. Take away the cross and Christianity is is just like every other religion, all of which require you to pick yourself up and ascend to heaven on your and in your own power. Take away the cross and all you are left with is salvation coming by human effort, human striving. Right? Take away the cross and the righteousness God requires is impossibly far away, and your own effort only takes you further away from the righteousness that God requires. The word of God says all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. That is the forgiveness God requires and God supplies made possible by the death of Jesus on the cross. And while Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, shed his blood to cleanse you, he preached seven times with few words but with great meaning. And so let's uh, give ourselves over to contemplating those words. So the first word from the cross is Luke 23, verses 33 to 34. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. So as those guilty drive nails into his hands and feet, Jesus prays for them. He prays for them. Think about the last time you were attacked by someone with unkind words or perhaps um, with fists or a weapon. How long before you were able to pray for the good of the person who attacked you? I'm sure it took some time. Some of us still bearing hurts from our childhood when we were wounded by somebody have not prayed for the good of the person who wounded us decades and decades later. The grudge has hindered our prayers. Jesus, though, his prayer is very gracious, isn't it? He calls their sin and hostility, he just calls it ignorance. They don't know what they are doing. As the soldiers play a game for Jesus' garments, Jesus is caring for their souls. And scripture says that on the cross, Jesus became sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And so being sin, he knows that his Holy Father is about to pour out upon him every bit of his unmitigated wrath. And he has the presence of mind, even as that he's facing that, he has the presence of mind to pray for those who are crucifying him. There, this is more than, than presence of mind, though. This is, this is love. This is love. The love of the shepherd for helpless, sinful, weak sheep. The truth that God is long-suffering, that he's patient and merciful, is certainly proven by what Jesus says in this statement. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Sinners were sinning against the Holy One. His response is one of compassion. Sinners were casting insults at the perfect Lamb of God. His response is simply one of concern. Sinners were seeking to silence his mouth, but his mouth is, is asking God to grant them what? Only the greatest gift that any of us could ever receive, which is the forgiveness of our sins. That's what he's asking his father to give those men who are crucifying him. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God is compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in loving kindness. With God, there is forgiveness of sins. Why was Jesus hanging from the cross? He was hanging from the cross for our forgiveness. Forgiveness of all the vile, miserable, self-centered, God-hating, unholy, wicked things that we have thought today and every other day. Oh, those gracious words, Father, forgive them, when you realize that you are the one he's speaking to. Father, forgive them. That you were not there physically, but you were there because you were there and your, your sins were there. 
And he preached this sermon to you, Father, forgive him. If you deny these words, if you deny that, that Jesus said them or that they have any meaning or that they're anything other than just, just uh, good literature, if you deny these words, if you refuse to believe these words of Jesus on the cross, what then? Well, then you do not believe that there is forgiveness through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that means that Jesus is merely just a tragic figure in the history of mankind. Add him to the long list of victims of oppression and injustice. He's a mere man like Gandhi or like Mother Teresa or like Teddy Roosevelt, right? All of whom did some admirable things. If that is so, Christ's death brings no atonement, no forgiveness, no reconciliation. It is powerless, and you are still in your sins. We are still in our sins. And God, because he is holy, is and ever will be angry with us because he has not been propitiated. But the Christian believes this sermon preached by Jesus. We believe what it says in Colossians. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And also in Ephesians, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. We know that when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, he was speaking to those weighed down by their sins. He was speaking to us. Second word of Jesus from the cross is Luke 23, 39 to 43 He who has ears to hear, let him hear. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So we receive here a conversation between three dying men. Three men who know that they only have hours left to live. The first has no fear of God. The second man honors God, and the third man is God. The tone of the first man was no doubt like the mocking crowds who surround Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. Save yourself. Save yourself in us. Can't you hear his raspy voice as he labors to catch his next breath? Right? It would take every effort he had to speak. It was hard for Jesus to speak. It would take every effort for him to speak. And he makes all of that effort, that first criminal, he makes all of that effort simply in order to mock God. 
What a terrible final word. Giving so much painful effort to blaspheme the one who created him, the savior of the world. That man is still blaspheming God every moment of every day. The second criminal rebukes the first, rebukes him and testifies to Jesus' innocence. He says, he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. And then this wonderful request, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That is faith. That dying man not only believes Jesus to be innocent, but believes that he is the the king of a kingdom. And the Son of God, who is facing, again, in moments, facing the full wrath of God, again, demonstrates his great kindness and love. He fills the man with hope. With these words, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Think of the joy that rushed into that man's heart even as he's dying, even as he's suffering, joy rushing into his heart. The criminal went from being the dregs of society and evil man to being redeemed by the blood presently running from the hands and feet of the man next to him. He received his citizenship papers. He was given by his faith a long stay in the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Every conversion to Christ, you know, is is just as dramatic as that man's conversion. Every conversion is a radical rescue from the domain of darkness and a glorious transfer then into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, into the kingdom of the Son. If you deny the words of this second sermon, if you think that they're just good literature, but maybe didn't really happen in history, didn't really mean anything. Well, what then? Well, it means, you, it means you resonate more with the insults of the first man than you do with the, the faith of the second man. It means you prefer the insult the Son of God than call out to him to save you. It means you are content to have your good things in this life because you assume there's nothing left after this life. It means you are content to mock this idea of salvation. It means you proudly view the second man as, as being undignified in his request. It means you will risk dying in your sins because you assume this is all there is. There is no life after death, and there is certainly no everlasting kingdom of Christ. But the Christian, the sermon of their Savior, gives us great patience, great encouragement, great delight in the delay, the delay of our pleasures. We may be of good courage because to be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. We have a glorious inheritance and a blessed future for all eternity. We learn that where Jesus is, that place is called paradise. In that place, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. 
There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. We learn by these words that paradise is much more than the things that please us in this life. What pleases us in this life? Things that taste good. Things that we've purchased. Temporary delights. Paradise, though, is to be at peace with God Almighty. It is to be in his presence. It is to be enjoying all of eternity in a Sabbath rest. It is to enjoy all eternity in worship and feasting and not having to flee from any enemy ever. If it is possible for those who are in hell to have regrets, that first man, as he endures the undying worm and the unquenchable fire, regrets the mocking words that came from his mouth. He received no assurance from Jesus, as did the second man, who simply humbled himself and called for help. Humbled himself and called for help. Third word of Jesus from the cross is John 19, 25 to 27. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Now, in this third sermon of Jesus, we again see the the depth of the compassion of Jesus. He's concerned for Mary, his, his, his mother. He's concerned for her care even while he's undergoing the agonies of crucifixion. Even while bearing the sins of the world, he still has his mind on his mother and her care. At one and the same time, Jesus is performing his duties toward God, he's dying for sinners, and his duties toward man, he's caring for his mother. He is keeping both tables of the Ten Commandments, even still, righteous to the very end, honoring God and honoring his mother. Don't forget, too, that Mary's soul, it is said, was pierced. She sees her son hanging from the tree. The eternal son of God had been born of that woman and his love for her was not mechanical. He cared for her as we would care for those who are closest to us. He cared for Mary, his mom, according to the flesh. And though he is nearing the very peak of his father's appointed work, he makes sure she has a place to stay. And a man to protect her. Right? Jesus is not afraid of any delusional feminists. He makes sure she has a man. If you deny this third sermon of Jesus, what does it mean? Perhaps you live for yourself alone. Your friends are there to inflate your ego. 
You work solely because you want a paycheck to spend on your pleasures. Your world revolves around you and you care for yourself. Oh, it's, it's, it is hard, is it not? To not live for your own pleasures, to not live merely to please yourself. How hard it is to live to please others, as Jesus did. Selflessly, I mean, selflessness is utterly impossible without the gift of the Spirit. Selfishness is an honored value in our society. It's an honored value in our hearts. Right? Me, me, me. Me first. I'm going to serve me. I mean, we'll even kill babies to end, uh, to the end that we might not lose our freedom by having to care for someone else. That's the kind of place we live in. There's little we consider worse than setting aside our own comfort to give comfort to others. Christian hears these words of Jesus, woman, behold your son, and behold your mother. And we learn that Jesus was, was a servant, caring for the bodily needs of those around him. As he bore Mary's sins on the cross, right, let's have no delusions about Mary not having sin. As he bore her sins upon the cross, he is still burdened that she might have some comfort in this life. We learn that God will supply all our needs. The psalmist writes, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. We learn that we need not worry about tomorrow because Jesus knows all our needs and will provide. He sees and he cares. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. After these words from the cross, Mary has little need to worry. And you and I have no need to worry. God will provide. Fourth word of Jesus from the cross is Mark 15, 33 to 34. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, these words of Jesus, I would say, are the most dissonant, mysterious statement in all of history. Every word ever uttered by any man does not come close to the depth and the, the pathos and the incomprehensibleness of this statement. This is communication between the eternal persons of the Trinity. That 
that may never be fully understood by any mortal man, even though they were spoken for our understanding so that we would be edified. Of all the words Jesus spoke from the cross, this one leaves us completely on the outside looking in. Why? Because the words indicate that that which can never be broken, broke. The Son, who is ever and always one with the Father, experienced forsakenness. That which can never be separated, separated. That which can never be interrupted, is interrupted. That which is the very epitome of love, divorced. The Father forsook the Son. The Father forsook His Son, His beloved Son, His only begotten beloved Son. To fully comprehend this moment is beyond our capacity, but to ignore this moment and and not contemplate it would would be foolish. Uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the English pastor, wrote, I do not think that the records of time or even of eternity, contain a sentence more full of anguish. Here the wormwood, the gall, and all the other bitterness are outdone. Here you may look as into a vast abyss, and though you strain your eyes and gaze till sight fails you, you you perceive no bottom. It is measureless, unfathomable, inconceivable. This anguish of the Savior on your behalf and mine is no more to be measured and weighed than the sin which needed it or the love which endured it. We will adore where we cannot comprehend. So even if we fully understand how this works in the ontology of the Trinity, we must see at its core the glory of God's love for sinful man for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son at this moment on the cross at that moment when Jesus was on the cross when he says those words Jesus is the sin of his people he is the sin of his people he is the sin of every one of you who has put your faith in Jesus Christ Jesus is King David's adultery and murder at that moment. Jesus is Paul's murderous hatred for the church at that moment. Jesus is our lusts and evil thoughts and anxieties and unbelief and adulteries and drunken orgies and hatred and and abusiveness and blasphemies and abortions. This is the moment when Jesus became the curse. It is the moment of propitiation. It's the moment where God's wrath is poured out on Jesus and and Jesus takes it. And God is pleased with that and God is satisfied with that appeasement. Listen to the way a theologian describes the weight of this moment on the cross. Jesus became, as Luther said, the greatest sinner that ever was. No one ever feared death so much as Jesus did, said Luther. He feared it because for him it was no sleep, but the wages of sin, 
death with the sting, death unmodified and unmitigated, death as involving all that sin deserved. He alone would face it without a covering, providing by his very dying the only covering for the world. But doing so as a holocaust, totally exposed to God's abhorrence of sin. And he would face death without God. Deprived of the one solace and the one resource which had always been there. It was the climactic moment and a moment of incredible density. And it was so precisely because... Its agony was so compacted, so infinite, as to be well-nigh unsustainable. The whole entail, the whole requirement of sin, pains and agonies that would have taken the world eternity to endure, were all poured on him in one horrific moment. I mean, so what do we learn from these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We learn that, our, that, that for our sins, Jesus was crushed. Crushed. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Spurgeon said we learn this, God will spare the sinner because he did not spare his own son. God can pass by your transgressions because he laid those transgressions upon his only begotten son nearly 2,000 years ago. We learn that Christ satisfied justice. Deny this sermon of Jesus and where are you left? You're left with an unbiblical view of yourself and will never understand the absolute and undefiled holiness of God. This rejection of sin as embodied in his son by the father is the very heart of the gospel, is it not? Those who will not believe it have an uncanny ability to not see their own sinfulness and the sinfulness of the world, right? Like like horses kept calm by blinds over their eyes, they are kept calm by blinding themselves to the sins everywhere around them and in their own lives and in their own hearts, They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And in the end, refusing to hear this sermon and believe leads them to believe that they aren't too bad. Why would anybody need to die because of the minuscule things that I have done in my life? To deny these words of Jesus is proof that you have no knowledge of your own true character and no knowledge of the true character of God. But for the Christian who hears the sermon and believes and weeps, he understands that God will be both just and the justifier. He will both hate sin and become sin. He rejoices in the salvation gained in Christ's sufferings, even as he weeps for the sins that caused this breach between the Father and the Son. 
this breach that we cannot explain. The fifth word from the cross is from John 19:28. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Though, for, though Jesus was forsaken by God, his physical human body still suffered. All things had been accomplished. He bore the sins of his people. He satisfied justice. He propitiated the wrath of his father. Now, after that work is completed, he expresses this simple bodily distress that we hear echoed by our children all the time. I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. The simple statement of Jesus' bodily agony should remind us that He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We learn that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may Receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Charles Spurgeon again said on this, Would you understand the reality and the intensity of his bodily sufferings? Then hear him say, I thirst. For there is something exquisite in the torture of thirst when brought on by the fever of bleeding wounds. Men on battlefield who have lost much blood are devoured with thirst and tell you that it is the worst pang of all. I thirst, says Jesus. See the sufferer in the body and understand how he can sympathize with you who suffer, since he suffered so much on the cross. The person who denies that there is any help or any meaning to Jesus speaking of his physical agony is the person who is so fearful of suffering himself that that he simply will not acknowledge that he suffers. And that's what our whole culture trades in, right? Life for that person is portrayed as a flowery bed of ease, a trip from joy to joy, but suffering is reality. We all know it. We suffer. Our bodies groan because of the fall of Adam. Some suffer because of their sin, right? The conscience is burdened by the sins you've committed, Some suffer because they love Jesus. Scripture says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, many difficulties, many pains, sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. And it says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't have a martyr complex, right? We're afraid of persecution, and rightly so, because persecution is terrible suffering. Suffering, though, and this is important, is sanctifying. Suffering is God's means. It's God's rod. It's God's means of sanctifying. And so contrary to what you've been taught by your therapists and pharmaceutical companies, suffering is not all bad. Are you suffering? Christ did too. 
And no servant is above his master. He knows your suffering, not in the abstract, but he can sympathize, right? So take heart. Jesus knows all about your suffering. He knows what it is like to not have water when the throat is caked with, with just, it's, it's cutting up because it's dry. He knows what it's like to not have that refreshment and, and, it, and the the sensation be so pervasive that that's all you can think about, right? He knows what it is not what what it is like not to have the comfort of his father when he's bearing the sins of the world. He knows your suffering as someone who has suffered. And when at last we've been sanctified by our suffering, he's going to take every bit of it away. He's going to take all of the the inward and outward hurts away from you. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. That water will satisfy. That water will, will completely do away with all need of any other water. The sixth word from the cross is John 19, 29 to 30. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So hear those three words, it is finished. This is no cry of defeat as in I'm, I'm through or I'm done. He's not tapping out. The statement is a shout of victory. Right? These words from Jesus' mouth mean that the whole accomplishment of his people's salvation has been fulfilled. Jesus has finished that work that his father gave him to do. Jesus has finished all those types and shadows of the law that did not have the power to atone for sins. Jesus has appeased now the wrath of God. Right? Jesus has obtained pardon for every one of his children. Jesus has removed even the sting from death. Jesus has finished the work of saving a dead and sinful people. It is finished. The reign of sin has come to an end. The age of the first Adam has been replaced with the age of the second Adam. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. So what if you reject these words, this proclamation by Jesus, what then? Likely it means, what it means is that you are looking for something other than Jesus for your salvation. Perhaps you think that he has a few things to teach you. But you you need to, as Calvin puts it, apply for assistance in some other quarter. Some look to themselves, some look to other people, some look to relationships, some look to cannabis and sensations, right? Some some look to intellectual enlightenment. 
And you are the captain of your own destiny. And you've decided that the finish line is being conservative or being kind to people or being educated or being an environmentalist or being a vegan. But those things without faith will lead you to hell. The, that, that man who makes those sorts of proclamations will proclaim to God on the judgment day, it is finished, I finished it myself. And the Son of God, who truly did works that please God and did them all, will calmly say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus has done all the work. Why are you looking somewhere else? Why? The Christian who hears these words and believes them knows that Christ has done everything, everything necessary for salvation from beginning to end. Our dear Jesus has suffered for our salvation. The perfect Lamb of God has propitiated the wrath of the Father and brought us near to the Father through his blood. Jesus did what we could not do. Jesus did it all from beginning to end. We were, after all, dead in our sins. And dead men do nothing. Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He did it that day on the cross. He accomplished salvation Cease striving and know that he is God. Cease striving. Know that he is God. He did what you can't do. Be at peace. Jesus' work for your soul is finished. Be joyous. Jesus' work for your soul is finished. Be grateful. Jesus' work for your soul, it is finished. Right? There is nothing else that needs to be done. Nothing else. Jesus has done it all. Seventh and final sermon Jesus preached on the cross comes from Luke 23, verse 46. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now notice that Jesus taking, now taking his final few breaths before his death and resurrection cries out with a loud voice. His human body is racked with relentless pain. Each breath is a labor and yet he, he now shouts. He fills his lungs, right? Pulls in the air to, to shout these final words and I don't think that was much labor for him because in these words, there's hope. Hope fills his heart. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then there are no more breaths, no more sighs, no more gasps. Jesus is dead. But from a short time before when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have come a long way. This final statement of Jesus is filled with trust and faith and care. Forsakenness has been replaced with commitment. The son, of, the son is going to the Father, having finished his glorious work. And Psalm 31, from which this statement is taken, fills out the picture of Jesus' words. Listen to 
this from Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Think of this from Jesus' perspective, saying them these words to his Father. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Notice this also. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus commits his own spirit to the Father. It was a voluntary sacrifice. And that means that it was purposeful. It was purposeful. Jesus was not at the mercy of any man at any point. Right? He laid down his life on his own terms. He did it on his own accord. He takes up his life also in, on his own accord. He does not just experience these things, but he does them. Things are not happening to Jesus. Jesus is making them happen. That is the kind of sacrifice that was necessary. And here at the end... He commits his spirit to his father. Jesus is perfectly in control and willingly laid down his life for his people. Deny this, deny this one sermon of Jesus. What then? Well, you may be a person who sees no place for spiritual realities, no place for spirits or souls. Right? That which exists is that which is seen and can be handled, you think. Right? You look at the world and only see physical realities. It's germs and evolution and COVID-19 and crude oil and warfare and monuments and artworks. You're simply waiting for your body to run out and then nothing. No consciousness. No ears to hear. No eyes to see anything. No nothing. Or you may think that Jesus was a victim of his circumstances, right? That's a very popular thing. Jesus, as an example of victimhood, has been hijacked by all kinds of people to manipulate and bring about a new gospel, right? You may view him as a victim of his circumstances. In that case, the atoning value of the sacrifice is completely removed because it is something that merely happened to Jesus and not something that Jesus did in obedience to the Father, that sucks the very guts out of the atonement, right? And Jesus just becomes another pathetic figure that supports our own sense of entitlement and victimhood. But the Christian hears these words and perceives very different realities. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Eternal. They don't run out. The temporal things run out. The Christian sees Jesus working to atone and then after all is finished, commending his spirit to the Father. He sees victory here in the summing up of all things in Christ. And so we learn from these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit that Jesus has acceptance now with God. Just moments earlier, God 
hated Jesus. God abhorred everything that Jesus was. God despised him because he became the curse, because he became sin. And now, now there's acceptance. Now that density of propitiation has, has, has been subsumed in Christ, and now there is commitment. Jesus has acceptance with the Father, and therefore we do too through faith. And just moments from my God, my God, to my Father, to Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Rejection has gone to acceptance, distance to closeness, pain to comfort. Right? The Christian hears these words and learns that Jesus, as Jesus' spirit goes to the gentle hands of the Father, so do our souls when we die. The spirit lives on. We are, after all, the, those who are Christians are united to Christ. They're in the hands of the Father is eternal security. John 10 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he did not, did not regard equality with you a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Even to the point of dying on a tree. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would fill our minds with your glory, with joy as we contemplate the glorious work of your son, Jesus, on the cross. And Father, on Sunday, when we think on his resurrection, his triumph over death, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be filled with joy, longing, strength, abundant life. Lord, help us in this. We glorify your holy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive the Lord's benediction. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.